Um, yeah, my name is Emma, if we haven't met before. <clears throat> and so I'll be, uh, have the privilege of reading God's word. So we'll do Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. <clears throat> you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will mal malign with the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you might be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, to not talk back to them, and to not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own people, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you this morning, uh, and uh, great for those of you who were at carols last night to be backing up again this morning uh, to uh, come and learn from God's Word. So let's do that now, and I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together. Uh, thank you for this series, thanks for Galatians, and for the way that it encourages us uh, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And I pray that we would uh, be learning to do that again uh, this morning, uh, and that you would help us uh, to live for Christ, um, demonstrating His character in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Uh, have you heard that expression before? It's a way of describing a highly competitive world. A world where everyone's trying to get ahead, where people will do whatever it takes for their own personal gain, even if it comes at the expense of others. And so, the media industry is dog-eat-dog. -dog. Just open your news app and see the inflammatory headlines that tear people down, or watch five minutes of ranting and raving on Sky News, or read the Twitter feed on Q&A, and you'll see what I mean. The Boxing Day sales are dog-eat-dog, -dog, aren't they? as people jostle their way through the crowd, searching for the bargain before anyone else gets to it. Even kids' sport can be dog-eat-dog. -dog. 
Not so much among the kids playing on the field, but on the sidelines, as parents scream abuse at the referees. It's a dog-eat-dog world, competitive, fierce and brutal. And so there are certain character traits that our world rewards and other character traits that it punishes. In a dog-eat-dog world, the winners, those that get ahead in life, are the strong, the uncompromising, those that think of themselves first. The losers, those that are left behind, show weakness and vulnerability and think of themselves last. This is the world we live in, isn't it? And it's, it's so easy to get caught up in it. Uh, just think back over the last week. Have you spoken harshly in a bid to get your own way over someone else's? Have you lied or bent the truth just a little bit to make yourself look better? Have you made a decision that benefits you more than anyone else? Or have you poured fuel on a fire, an already intense situation. This is the world that we live in and get caught up in, but if we're followers of Jesus, this isn't the world we belong to, is it? Jesus' kingdom is not a dog-eat-dog world. It's the opposite, in fact. It's a world where people seek to gain, not for themselves, at the expense of others. It's a world where people seek others' gain at the expense of themselves. That's why Galatians 5 reminds us that we're not saved to love and serve ourselves. It's worth highlighting that key verse again, Galatians 5 verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We're saved to love and serve others. But it doesn't come naturally and that's why God gives us His Spirit and over the last few weeks we've explored how God Himself lives in us and produces fruit in our lives and how we're to be active in cultivating this fruit in all kinds of ways, working at growing these character traits that mark us out as belonging to God's Kingdom. And these last two, gentleness self-control. These are not virtues that our world will reward us for. In fact, the world will punish us for pursuing them, we'll miss out on getting ahead, we'll miss out on success, we will stand to lose, not to gain, but only in a worldly sense. You see, when the fruit of gentleness and self-control is cultivated in our lives, we stand to gain what's truly valuable. So first, gentleness. What is gentleness? Gentleness is one of the least honoured qualities in our world. It may be good to be gentle if you're a nurse or a counsellor, but what about a lawyer or a business owner? It's toughness that gets things done. It's aggression that triumphs. Coco Chanel once said, gentleness doesn't get work done unless you happen to be a hen laying eggs. See, our world associates gentleness with weakness and it's something that's looked down on, particularly in men. 
It's seen as unmasculine to be gentle. When you ask a father, what do you want from your son? Very few would say, I want him to be gentle. You don't hear dads on the sideline at the footy yelling out, be more gentle. But if being gentle just means being nice, if gentleness is passive, tame and lifeless, no wonder it's so unappealing. No wonder it's seen as unproductive and a waste of time. But I want to contend that there is nothing tougher, nothing that shows true strength of character more than gentleness. In the Scriptures, gentleness is not the opposite of strength or passion. The truly gentle person is the one who is strong, but who knows how to restrain their strength for the good of the other. The gentle person does not break the fragile. And this is exactly what God is like, isn't it? Gentleness is ultimately found in God Himself. He's the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, and yet He treats us gently. He's the God who powerfully rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, as we saw from Exodus. He's the holy God who descended on Mount Zion in fire and smoke. But it's precisely because of his power that shows us what gentleness is. When he deals with his creatures, he restrains his power. He doesn't crush us, he stoops down to help us. And perhaps the best image in the Bible that uh, shows us God's gentleness is the shepherd image because it combines both tenderness and toughness at the same time. Like in Isaiah 40, after God is described in His almighty power, it says in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11, He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart He gently leads them. He gently leads those that have young. God is also described like a parent who knows that his children are weak and vulnerable, like in Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. From the Scriptures, we learn that God is gentle with us as His creatures. He's like a lion who carries His cubs in His jaws, who holds them firmly to keep them safe, but not so firmly that they're crushed. That's what God's gentleness is like. As Isaiah says in chapter 42, verse 3, A bruised reed He will not break, and a smouldering wick He will not snuff out. And in Jesus, we see this gentleness in human form, don't we? More than any other character in history, Jesus is a portrait of gentle strength and humble power. In fact, I think the word meek that refers to Jesus so often in the Gospels captures gentleness better than anything because it's the humility that meant Jesus didn't stand up for his own rights but put the rights of others above his own. It's meekness that meant he was willing to give up everything to save us rather than stand on his rights and demand his own way. It's the way Jesus came to 
not burden us, but to remove our burdens. Listen to Matthew 11. These are Jesus' own words. Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, to follow Jesus is not to be enslaved to an abusive tyrant, but to find rest for your soul. This is the Lord who carries our burdens on his back, who bears our sins in his body on the tree. He does not treat us as we deserve, but as we need when we come to him. But if you've ever read any of the Gospels, you'll notice that this gentle Jesus is not weak and he's not without passion. He cares for his Father's holiness so much that he overturns tables in the temple. His inner resolve is to do God's will, resisting temptation and overcoming the trials put before him. Toughness and controlled anger in a just cause are not the opposite of gentleness. We see in Jesus a deeper gentleness. We see in Jesus that gentleness is when the stronger restrain their strength for the sake of the weaker. Have you met this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? The Jesus who gently invited the woman at the well in John chapter 4 to come to him and drink from the well of eternal life. The Jesus who gently restores Peter in John 21 after Peter had denied, denied knowing him three times. The Jesus who we've seen gently calls all who are weary to come to him and find rest. Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of gentleness. And for those of us who have met him and do know him, we are called to follow his example. Check out Titus chapter 3 verse 2. Here's what Paul told Titus to teach. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, ready to do what is good. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and get this, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Gentleness is a characteristic that should govern all our relationships, all of the time. But why is that? Why is gentleness part of the fruit of the Spirit? Why are we called to cultivate it in our lives? Well, I think the Scriptures give us at least three reasons why. First, gentleness fosters unity. Gentleness fosters unity. Have a look with me at Ephesians 4, if you've got your Bibles there. Uh, turn to Ephesians 4 where gentleness and humility are the first things that Paul mentions when he holds out the worthy life to live in Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 1 and 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble and gentle. To what end? The, obje the objective is to maintain unity. If you look at verse 3, 
it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's interesting how often the Spirit is mentioned through the Scriptures when these traits, these character traits, are so close by. See, as a church family, we have different preferences and come from different backgrounds. We've got different personalities and have different expectations. And you know what? We've got different ideas too and and different opinions. And what is it that will foster unity with these differences that we have? What is it that will foster unity when we don't get each other or when we annoy each other or when we feel the temperature rising in conflict even with one another? What is it? Gentleness. Gentleness means if you have a position of strength in some way, being willing to care for those who are weaker. It means treating others with kindness rather than roughness. It means empathetic compassion rather than domineering force. So if you're a parent or involved in kids or youth ministry, it'll be gentleness that builds connection and trust with those who are younger as they seek to understand for themselves what it means to follow Jesus. If you're a ministry leader or or need to raise an issue with someone uh, at church or someone else, gentleness will give you a hearing and enable them to grow when you raise that issue. The first reason to cultivate gentleness is that it fosters unity. Second, gentleness restores relationship. I know for me, when someone criticises me or is frustrated at me or is angry at me, Often my instinct is to jump straight into defending myself. But Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The response of escalation when someone else is angry almost never helps. Gentleness is called for in these situations. And it's also called for when rebuking or correcting someone. There's all kinds of sin in our lives that we actually need to just overlook, right? Like in community with one another, like we're we're called to be patient and forbearance is important. But there is a time to raise uh, a sin with a brother or a sister uh, when someone is caught in a pattern of sin uh, and rebellion, or or certain particular sins. And and Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. See that there? Gently. When someone has has erred, we're to correct them, not with cruelty or by shaming them, but gently, with a goal of restoration. We need to remember that we're just as flawed as anyone else. I have no reason to feel superior or get aggressive when others show their flaws and their failings, not if I know my own heart. 
Gentleness flows out of gratitude for the grace of God who has rescued me from my failings. Gentleness restores relationship. And the third thing is gentleness commends the gospel. Peter shows us that gentleness is our communications strategy when sharing Christ. Check out 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16. Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I came across a quote this week uh, by... Um, someone called Dallas Willard, and this is what he says. He says, The means of our communication needs to be gentle because gentleness also characterises the subject of our communication. What we are seeking to defend or explain is Jesus himself, who is a gentle, loving shepherd. If we are not gentle in how we present the good news... How will people encounter the gentle and loving Messiah we want to point to? Just think about the dog-eat-dog world we live in. A world of outrage, enmity and hostility. That is why our answer has to embody the message and person we want to communicate. Only with gentleness will people be able to see, verify and be persuaded to respond to what we have to say. But don't hear me say that to be gentle means to hold off on the truth. It's not like that at all. We can't conceal from people the devastating reality of sin and the coming judgment of God. But we can't do so from a position of superiority. We share Christ, after all, because we want people to know Christ's peace and His love, as we do. The Gospel is the good news of God's gentle mercy. So, gentleness fosters humility, restores relationship and commends the Gospel. But, without self-control, we won't be gentle, will we? Because as we've already seen, at the heart of gentleness is restraint. But it's like that with all these characteristics that we're called to cultivate. Without self-control, we will not bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Part of the work of the Spirit within us is that it enables us to keep sinful desires and impulses under control so that our energy is directed towards good ends rather than selfish ends, leading to life rather than to destruction. The Spirit enables us to put off the works of the flesh that Paul mentions before the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 19-21. Behaviours that show human nature out of control. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just in case he didn't mention everything there, and the like. Okay, basically everything else. (laughs) Something that I've been wrestling with this week is how self-control is a bit different 
to the other fruit of the Spirit. I think I mentioned, um, actually I know I mentioned at the start of the series, that these are the character traits that are first part of God's character before they're part of our character. But as, as I've been thinking about self-control and, and chatting with different people, self-control isn't an attribute of God. God doesn't need to exercise self-control over any sinful tendency. He's perfect and holy in everything. Self-control is a virtue that arises out of our redeemed state and is a new attitude towards sin. To be self-controlled is to say no, but that's not an end in itself. Saying no also means saying yes, doesn't it? And it's the things we say yes to that reflect God's character. There's a subtle difference there. So maybe self-control is among the fruit of the Spirit because by enabling us to say no to sin, we can say yes to righteousness. Have a look at Titus chapter 2 and notice how many times and to which groups of people Paul calls Titus to teach about self-control. I'll pick it up from Titus chapter 2 verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Self-control is not just something for the young. And it's not just for men. It's something that needs to be cultivated by all ages, young and old, men and women. It's something for all God's people like the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Verse 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our dog-eat-dog world has self-fulfilment at its heart. It promises your best life now and it shares the same goal as self-control, life. But self-fulfilment at all costs is intent on getting its reward now and it will play whatever game necessary to get that reward, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. Self-denial, on the other hand, self-control, calls us to lean on God and to trust Him, to accept His vision for the good life rather than constructing our own and to show godly constraint and restraint even when it means losing out now. Because broad is the road that leads to destruction, as Jesus says, but narrow is the road that leads to life. I want to finish this series by coming back to this general idea of living by the Spirit because 
these character traits we're called to cultivate in our lives, they're a package deal, aren't they? They go together. The works of the flesh, they're all about me and gratifying my desires, about elevating myself while often tearing others down. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's about other people and and putting other people before yourself and above yourself. Sometimes you'll miss out in this life because you are patient, good, gentle and kind. That's the reality. But remember what Jesus says on his, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. It's the meek that inherit the earth. They may not be recognised by this world, but they're recognised by God. What God wants in you is not what the world wants in you. So I hope you've been challenged um, over this over the last few weeks, because we struggle, don't we? But the purpose is not to feel guilty, because we are saved by grace, not by works. So don't despair. We will continue to sin and continue to fail until Christ returns and we're made perfect. But still, there's a place for genuine repentance and mourning of your sin at the same time as praising God for His forgiveness in Christ and then praying for His help in growing in the fruit of the Spirit. So there's a challenge there, isn't there? But I hope you've also been encouraged. Encouraged as you see this fruit growing in your life and growing in the lives of others around you. It's sometimes slow and up and down and and it's definitely not instantaneous but we do grow. We really do. And I pray that you can see this growth in your life. And I can tell you that non-Christians see this. Our world is a horrible place in so many ways, where people are quick to judge and speak harshly and are slow to help anyone that they're not related to or that they don't like. And because of that, even your smallest acts of gentleness, for example, shine like a beacon in our world. Even the smallest act of self-control makes people think, what's different about them? Even though we struggle, people see the Spirit at work. So let me encourage you to cultivate this fruit in your life and among one another, so that we commend our Lord and Saviour to our world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy in the Lord Jesus to us. Thank you that we can be forgiven and that by faith in you, live a new life. Lord, we pray that your grace would teach us to live godly lives, lives that reflect you and your character in in our community here at New Life and in the world around us. Lord, I do pray that you would show us and help us to love 
your vision of the good life and to see how it is indeed the way to flourish rather than the world's way uh, which leaves a trail of destruction. Lord, when we fail, remind us of your grace. But Lord, as we are growing and cultivating this fruit, may your spirit encourage us to keep living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.